Would you open your Bible tonight to the book of Judges with me? Judges chapter number 10. Judges chapter number 10. We've been working uh, through the book of Judges off and on over the last few months, and we're going to be returning to it tonight, looking here in this chapter. And this particular chapter in the book of Judges is a little bit unique because it doesn't contain any of the famous judges in this portion of the story. Uh, In verse 1, it says, And after Abimelech there arose to defend Israel Tola, the son of Puah, the son of Dodo. How many of you immediately thought, oh yeah, I remember Tola. I, I didn't think so. I don't remember a single Sunday school lesson about Tola, the son of Puah, the son of Dodo. But I have to wonder, did he get made fun of because of his grandfather's name, Dodo? But he was a man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shamir in Mount Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years and died and was buried in Shamir. That's all that we know about him. He judged Israel. And then verse 3, after him arose Jer, a Gileadite, and judged Israel 20 and 2 years. Again, there's a name we don't usually think of that we recognize from our studies through the book of Judges, Jer. But we do know, according to verse 4, he had 30 sons that rode on 30 ass colts, and they had 30 cities, which are called Havath-Jer unto this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jer died and was buried in Canaan. And so just like that, we have 45 years of Israel's history. And that's all we know about it right there. And in the rest of this chapter, there, are, there is no judge mentioned. But what we find in the, in the rest of this chapter is a wonderful explanation of God's mercy and His compassion and His love for His people. Now remember, the book of Judges, it's recording a time It's uh, in the history of the Jews. It covers about 400 years, very long span of time, longer than America has been around. And during this time, there was no king in Israel. But instead, God would raise up these leaders called judges, and they weren't they were not like judges that we think of them, like, uh, you know, that sit behind a bench in a courtroom all day. But these were, these were leaders in the country uh, that, would, uh, that would lead a, a lot of times into battle against their enemies to deliver them from oppression. Uh, but in general, their responsibility was to, to be the example and to lead the nation in serving God and obeying God. However... They did not do a good job of it. And as we go through the book of Judges, we find it just gets worse and worse and worse until we finally get toward the end and we read in two different places where it says that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It was what we would call anarchy. It was just a free-for-all. Everybody was doing whatever they felt like doing And in fact, some of the stories to the end of the book are just so horrible that some of them we will probably not even discuss. They're just that bad. And we're we're left with this definite impression of there has to be someone better. 
there has to be a better ruler than these people. I mean, because these were the best that the nation had to offer, and they were awful. And it's kind of like we feel today when we we look at politics, we look at the people that are in charge of our country, and we think to ourselves, is that really the best we can do? It's kind of the same way. And the whole purpose is to remind us, yes, yes, we need someone better than our best. We need God. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate deliverer. He is our Savior. And so throughout the book of Judges, we find this vicious cycle where the people of God would turn away from God and they would start worshiping idols. And because they turned away from God and they would worship idols and they would do horrible things in the practice of worshiping these idols that God would punish them for it because God is too good to let us ruin our lives without intervening. And so God would punish His people for it and He would do that in this context by allowing foreign armies to come in and invade and to oppress them and to, and to make life hard for them. We've been through a number of these judges now and, and uh, we most recently finished up with the story of Gideon and then um, his... Um, his uh, son Abimelech and, and all of that from chapter number 9. And, and uh, we see that there was a period of time, as we've noticed here, that things seemed to be going pretty good in Israel. For about 45 years, um, there was uh, no major national tragedies, you might say. Uh, things were going pretty good. But then Jair, this last judge, dies. And we read this in Judges Chapter 10, verse 6. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam and Ashtaroth, which were false gods. They were idols. And the gods of Syria and the gods of Zidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the children of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines and forsook the Lord and served Him not. If I had to give a title of the message tonight, I would entitle it this, God, I did it again. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would instruct us from your word tonight, help us to understand that you are a merciful and a loving God, and that when we sin, you still love us, and you will still forgive And Lord, we can still have close fellowship with you if we will confess our sin and make it right. Thank you that we can do that because of what Jesus has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first phrase of... Judges 10.6 says the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. This is a theme that we've seen throughout the book. Turn with me all the way back to chapter number 2. And uh, if you remember back many weeks ago when we came to Judges chapter 2 and we were studying through this, we saw that this was kind of a a summary in Judges chapter 2 of the whole book and the whole cycle And uh, verse number 11, 
describing the events of book of book of the book of Judges says, "And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods." The gods of the people which were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger and they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And we see this and we've already seen it. We'll continue to see it throughout this book where, where God will deliver His people from their enemies and He will bless them again and life will go good. And just as soon as life starts going well, they start worshiping idols again. And they go back through this vicious cycle over and over and over again. And we find the cycle starting again here in verse number 6. And, you know, I, I think it's easy for us to, to read a story like this and say, yeah, those, those Jews in the Old Testament, they really couldn't get their act together, could they? Man, they just, yeah, they just, they just really had a hard time of it. I'm glad I'm not like them. But, you know, the truth is we are like them. Have you ever done something, and as soon as you did it, you thought, why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have acted that way. I shouldn't have thought that. Why did I do that? I knew I shouldn't do that. In fact, I've done it before, and I knew it was wrong, but I did it again. Now, the message tonight is for those of us who know Christ as our Savior primarily. Because even after we are saved, the fact is we're going to sin. We're still going to mess up. We're still going to do wrong. God does not make us perfect at the moment of salvation. He starts the process of perfection in our life. Now, we are under the blood of Christ. Our sins are forgiven. In the eyes of God, we stand as righteous as Jesus. But in a practical, from a practical standpoint, everyday life, we still sin. And there are going to be times where maybe a particular sin becomes a habit in our life. You might say that Satan gets a stronghold in our life in this particular area. And when you're faced with that situation, it can be very frustrating as a Christian because you may go to God and sincerely confess that sin with a genuine desire to get it out of your life, to no longer do that thing, and you confess it, and God forgives you. And you know you can just, you have that assurance of the Holy Spirit in your heart that God has forgiven you. And then just a short while later, maybe another few hours, maybe a day, maybe a week, you turn around and you do it again. And it can get very frustrating. And if we're not careful, we can begin to give in to Satan's lie that God will no longer forgive us because we've done it too many times. And what I want you to see with me tonight is that no matter how many times we sin, God still loves us. He is compassionate and He is merciful. And if we will confess our sin, God will have mercy and God will forgive it. So notice with me, number one, Israel's sin here. We've already talked about it in verse number six. It says that they, they turned from the Lord. They, they served Balaam and Ashtaroth. And listen to this, this list of false gods that they served. The gods of Syria, the gods of Zidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the children of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines. 
five different people groups in addition to the specific gods of Balaam and Ashtaroth that it says that the Jews, God's people in the Old Testament, were worshiping. Now, I know for many of us, the idea of worshiping multiple gods is is truly a foreign concept because that's not the culture we grew up in. We grew up in a culture that was predominantly a culture where you worship one God. But in the Bible times, and certainly in this area around Israel, most people had the attitude when it, when it comes to worship, the more the merrier. We'll worship any God and every God because we don't want to miss any. We don't want to leave any out. And so Baal and Ashtaroth were kind of the primary gods, if you will. But there were many, many other gods that they would worship. And they would bow down to statues and pray to these idols and they would burn incense and they would bring sacrifices and, and they would even do horrible things like, like a human sacrifice and some worship of some of these gods. These were horrible, horrible, horrible practices. And that's what the Israelites started doing again. Don't miss that word. Again. This wasn't the first time. As we've read through the book of Judges, we've seen it multiple times already. And here they are doing it again. Now, it's been several years, quite a few years since the last um, serious uh, uh, rebellion against God, if you will. It's been probably about 45 years. They were on the right track for a long time. And that's been enough time for a whole other generation to grow up, not having to deal with the hardships that come with idol worship. And we don't know exactly how it happened on this instance. We just know that as a whole, the people turned from God to worship idols. That was their sin. And so verse number 7 says, The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and He sold them into the hands of the Philistines, into the hands of the children of Ammon. And that year they vexed and oppressed the children of Israel. Here we see Israel's punishment. God had warned them going all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. God said, if you turn from me, I will punish you. These nations that you're going to drive out of the land, I'm going to send them back to punish you, to oppress you. They're going to come in with their armies. They're going to kill people. They're going to hurt people. They're going to steal stuff. They're going to break things. They're going to burn your towns down. And they're going to make life miserable for you if you forsake me to serve idols. And here that's what the Lord did. In keeping with His Word, He, the Bible says, sold them into the hands of the Philistines. The Philistines would be, throughout the Old Testament, a a, a constant enemy of the Israelites. The most famous Philistine was, of course, Goliath. He was the giant that David slew this many years after the events here in book, book of Judges. But these were the people that God sold them into, but as well as the hands of the children of Ammon. Now what I want you to see here is both the Ammonites and the Philistines were listed previously as the, some of the people that the Israelites were worshiping with. Isn't that ironic to you? that the Israelites forsook the Lord to align themselves with the Ammonites and the Philistines and these other people who didn't believe in God and worshipped their idols, but now they, the Ammonites, the Philistines and others, are turning against the Israelites and hurting them, making their life horrible. Let me just pause here and say, Christian, the world may may try to get you to believe that they're on your side. 
and that they want to make your life better, if only you would leave that Christianity stuff behind and come join them, they could make you really happy, they could really help you, and, and, and life would be great. Don't believe it, it's a lie. Don't believe it, it's a lie. Because just as soon as they get a chance, they will use you and they will chew you up and spit you out. And that's what's happening to the Jews here, the Israelites. The Philistines and the Ammonites began to oppress, verse number 8, they oppressed the children of Israel. And it says that they did it for 18 years. 18 years. If we go back 18 years from today, we're in the year 2020, excuse me, 2005. 2005. Some of you weren't even born yet. Some of you were born in 2005, Caleb. 18 years is a long time. Think about our nation's history. In 2005, George W. Bush was president. We've had President Obama, President Trump, now President Biden since then. A lot has happened in our country. And a whole generation has now grown up in Israel here in Judges chapter 10 that all they've known is the oppression of the Philistines. All the children of Israel, verse 8, that were on the other side of Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. Moreover, the children of Ammon passed over Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was, notice this expression, sore distressed. They were sore distressed. I mean, it's bad enough to be distressed. God says they were sore distressed. I mean, their life was absolutely miserable. And it was all of Israel on both sides of the Jordan River. There was the two and a half tribes that were on the west side, east side, excuse me, and then there were the other tribes on the west side. And it was everywhere, both sides of the Jordan, all over the place. Things were just terrible. And all of this was because they had turned away from the Lord. Now some people might think, well, that's mean. Why would God do that? If he really loved them, why would he punish them like that? Well, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us the answer. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. In other words, a good parent punishes a child if they love that child, if that child is doing something that is harmful to themselves. A good parent is not going to let their child play out in the street and harm themselves. A good parent will stop that child. And if the child insists on continuing to play in the street, a good parent will use whatever form of discipline is necessary to reinforce the idea, don't play in the street. Why? Because playing in the street is destructive. It's harmful. And listen, God is a perfect heavenly father. And he is not going to let his children play in the street, as it were, without using the appropriate punishment and discipline to let us know that is destructive. When we sin against God, we are hurting ourselves. And God is too good to let us continue to do that without stopping, without intervening. And so God allowed the Philistines to come in and oppress them, the Ammonites to come in and oppress them, and the result was that after 18 years of this oppression, Israel was sore distressed. So notice what happens now in verse number 10. The children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee 
both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. Number three here, we see Israel's confession. They finally had enough. Things finally got bad enough for them to say, you know what, we should do something different. It's amazing how long you and I can keep doing the same thing that's bad, that's hurtful, that's harmful, over and over again, how long we can continue doing that before we finally wake up to the fact, I should do something different. My life is miserable. Things are not going like I want them to go. I I know things aren't right. I need to stop this and I need to do something different. It took Israel 18 years to come to that conclusion, unfortunately. It does not have to take you and I that long. Hopefully, we will get the picture much quicker that when God works in our life to point out our sin, we immediately say, God, I've sinned. But they finally did get to that point in verse number 10. They said, we have sinned against thee. That's confession right there. Confession, some people use that word, and if you have any kind of like a Catholic background, you may think of confession as that time that you go and you sit in that little wooden closet with somebody else on the other side of a wall, and you tell another person all your sin. And that's what the Catholics call going to confession. But the Bible idea of confession is not that at all. The Bible idea of confession is not you sitting in a closet telling your sins to some other person. The Bible idea of confession is when you and I agree with God about our sin. You have to agree, first of all, that you have sinned. It's amazing how many people don't ever even get to that point. They don't call their sin, sin. They might admit a failure, a shortcoming, a fault, a defect. But sin... That sounds pretty harsh. No, if you're going to confess your sin, you have to first of all admit that you've sinned. But then there has to be this idea of agreement with God about your sin. Notice how specific they were in agreeing with God. There were two parts to their confession. Notice it again. They said, both because we have forsaken the Lord. That's part number one. We walked away from God. But then they said, and also served Balaam. If you're walking away from God, you're walking towards something else. And in this case, they were walking toward Balaam. And they were worshiping Baal. So they turned from God to Baal. There were two parts to this sin. They were not sugarcoating what they did here. They were agreeing with God about their sin. This is the first step in the right direction for them getting right with God. But I want you to notice now what God's answer was. And I'm going to, before I read this, I'm just going to let you know, it's going to sound kind of harsh. But let's listen to what God says. Verse 11, And the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians, and from the Amorites, and from the children of Ammon, and from the Philistines, the Zidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Manites, did oppress you? And ye cried to me, and I delivered you out of their hand. Yet ye have forsaken me and served other gods. Wherefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of tribulation. Now, if we're honest, this sounds pretty harsh coming from God, doesn't it? God says, you know, I I delivered you out of Egypt. 
I delivered you from the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Philistines. And when the Zidonians oppressed you and the Amalekites and the Mayanites, when all of these people were, were hurting you, making life miserable for you, you cried out to me and I delivered you from them. And yet, ye have forsaken me. Verse number 13. God says, you've forsaken me and you've gone back and you've served the gods of the people that I delivered you from. You went back and you served the gods of the people who tried to kill you. And so the Lord says, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of tribulation. Now, I just want to say here, a little bit of a spoiler alert. God does forgive them. God does deliver them. He's, but we're kind of mid-sentence here, if you will, mid-thought. So I don't want to give you the impression that God's being cruel and God's cutting them off. That's not what He's doing. But instead, God's trying to point out something to them for their benefit. He says in verse number 14, Go and cry unto the other gods which ye have chosen. You chose those other gods. Why don't you ask them for help? You know what God is pointing out here? He's highlighting the foolishness of serving any other God but the one true God. Because what's going to happen if they were to go back and cry out to Baal and Ashtaroth, say, Baal, save me. What's going to happen? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Why? Because Baal's not real. Ashtaroth is not real. The gods of the Zidonians and the Philistines and the Ammonites, they're not real. They're make-believe. They're fake. Turn over to the book of Psalm. Psalms 115 with me. Psalm 115. Psalm 115. Look at verse 4. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. Verse 5, They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. So I want you to imagine with me, I don't have one here, I dare not bring one in here, but let's just pretend like I had a little statue of, let's just say Buddha right here. A little idolatrous statue. And you were to look at this statue, let's say it's made, of, made out of rock, stone of some sort, that's been carved to look like a classic Buddha. You would see on this statue, this idol, that it would have a mouth. But can that chunk of rock talk? No. It would have hands. But could that statue handle anything? It would have feet. But could it walk? It would have eyes, but could it see? The answer to all these questions is obviously not, because it's just a chunk of rock. And we say, well, that's just the idol. It's just supposed to be a representation of, of a God, quote-unquote. 
Obviously, the chunk of rock can't do those things. But no, here's God's point. Is that the God that this idol supposedly represents is just as powerless as the God that it supposedly represents. False gods are powerless. Now, you might think, well, what's that got to do with us? We live in America. There are very few people that actually have idolatrous statues. But you know what? America is probably, arguably, one of the most idolatrous nations ever. We're just more sophisticated about it. We have gods like the god of money. Why do I call it a god? Because most people's lives are ruled by money. Money is what is their highest priority, if you want to call it that. Whatever it is to make more money. Whatever it is that controls your life, whatever it is that controls your life, that's your God. If it's money, you've made money into an idol. Some people serve the idol of self-image. Their life is controlled by how they can boost their self-image, make other people think of them. You see this a lot with online influencers and things like that. It's all about how many likes, how many clicks, how many views, how much me, 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 me. And they're serving the God of themselves. Some people, their God is politics. Some people, their God is parties. Some people, their God is, is education. Some people, their God is recreation. Whatever it is that controls your life is your God. Little g, you would say. Not uppercase, referring to the one true God, but a little g, false God. Whatever controls your life is God. And this is what you need to understand. That if your God is not the one true God, you're serving a false God that is powerless to save you. Because I don't care how much money in the world you have, you cannot buy one second of eternal life. It is powerless to save you. And so God says, cry unto those gods. Let them deliver you. But notice what God's people says back in, uh, back in Judges chapter 10. By the way, I, before we look at that, I, I, I love the story in 1 Samuel chapter 5. We won't go there for sake of time. But it's a story where Israel brings the Ark of the Covenant, or excuse me, the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant, and they bring it into the temple of Dagon. Dagon was their false god. And if you remember the story, the next day they go into the temple, and the statue of Dagon is fallen down on the ground in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And so you know what they do? They say, oh my goodness, God fell over. And they go in there and they prop God back up. They come in the next day and the statue of Dagon has fallen down again, but this time its hands and its feet have fallen off. And it's just a stump left on the pedestal where it was. I'm so glad that my God does not need to be propped up. I'm glad He is the one true God who stands on His own. And so the Israelites respond to the Lord in verse number 15. The children of Israel said unto the Lord, We have sinned. Here we find their correction. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee, this day. And they put away the strange gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. Notice how Israel corrected themselves here. First of all, there's a repetition of the confession when it says, we have sinned. 
And then there's submission to God. Do unto us whatever seems good to you. Whatever you think is right, whatever judgment we deserve, we'll accept it. But please deliver us, they pray. So there's, there's confession, there is submission, there's supplication here. They ask God for deliverance once again. But then in verse number 16, we find the practical steps of correction that they took. It says, first of all, they put away from among them the strange gods. So that's the negative side of the correction here. There were some things in their lives they had to get rid of. They were worshiping idols, and in order to be right with God, they had to get rid of those idols. They had to worship the one true God. That meant they had to get rid of all the false gods. And whenever you and I sin against the Lord, there are things in our life then that sin that we need to get out. We need to get rid of it. And the way that we do that is by confession. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you go back to God and you say, God, I've sinned. I did this, I said this, I thought this, whatever it might be. And maybe it's like we're talking about here, God, I've sinned again. But you go back to the Lord and you confess it. You get that out of your life. But then there's the positive side of it in verse 16. It says that they served the Lord. There was a recommitment of themselves here to do what was right and to honor the Lord and to obey Him. As you read through these early books in the Bible, you find that there's a pattern that emerges in the book of Deuteronomy and Joshua. The idea of loving God and serving Him through obedience are connected over and over and over and over again. And Jesus summarized it this way in the New Testament. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So when we talk about loving God and serving God, we're talking about simply obeying God, doing what God says to do, and not doing what God says don't do. It's really that simple. But there has to be this positive aspect of, of, of once we have gotten rid of the sin in our life, of doing the things that we should be doing, that God has commanded us to do. And they served the Lord. They put away the strange gods from among them and they served the Lord. This was the steps they took in correcting their mistakes. When Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, was tempted... One of the times he responded to Satan by saying, It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. And the Israelites in Judges 10 got a hold of that principle. Hey, we can't serve God and Baal. We can't serve God and Ashtaroth. We can't serve God and the gods of the Zidonians and the Ammonites and all these other people. If we're going to serve God, we have to serve God exclusively. We need to get a hold of that principle too. God cannot be one among many in our lives. He needs to be the one. He needs to be our one and only God because He is the one and only true God. But if we're trying to live for God and live for money or live for God and live for fame or live for God and live for our own pleasure, if we're trying to split our attention and our energy and our time, we're not serving God as we should. Jesus said, No man can serve two masters. Or else he will hate the one and love the other. Or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or material things. Serve God exclusively. And that's what they got back to here. 
You might say that they experienced revival. Because revival is when you and I get totally right with God. And here as a nation, they were not perfect. But on the whole, they got back to the place where they were not serving idols and they were serving God. And I love this expression at the end of verse 16. It says, And his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. Last point here, we see God's compassion. God's compassion. He has this conversation. Hey, look, you've turned from me and gone to these other gods, so go ask them. And they say, no, no, we're not going back to them. We're going to serve God and God alone. And the Bible says that God was grieved for the misery of the children of Israel. His soul was grieved. And, you know, the Bible's just simply putting this in language that we can understand. To communicate this idea that God had compassion on His people. That He did not always want to have to punish them. He wanted to bless them. And it, it actually hurt God's heart to see His people hurting. And so God, in chapter 11, would deliver them through a very flawed man by the name of Jephthah, which we will study in the future, Lord willing. But this is where I want us to finish up tonight, by dwelling on the love and the compassion of God in spite of all our sin. I am so thankful that John 3.16 is in the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let me ask you a question. What condition was the world in when God sent Jesus to die for our sins? Was the world perfect? Was the world holy? Was the world everything it ought to be? No. The world was filled with sinful people. And yet God looked on this this world full of sinners, and said, I love them. So much I'm going to send my son to die for their sin. I'm so thankful that Romans 5, 8 is in the Bible. But God commendeth, that is, He proved or He demonstrated His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, we were not perfect angels by any stretch when God sent Jesus to die for us. We were sinners deserving of death and hell, but God said, I love them. And let me tell you something, God's love that was demonstrated on the cross has not stopped. God loves us with an eternal love. And Christian, let me tell you this, when you and I sin against God, Satan may want us to think that God no longer loves us. But it's not true. God still loves you. And the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our sins was not sufficient only for the sins that we committed in the past. But that blood of Christ that He shed for our sins also is sufficient for the sins we commit now and any sins we'll commit in the future. And it's through the blood of Christ, Ephesians 1.7 says that we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. There is no sin that Christ's blood is not powerful enough to forgive. Again, all that we have to do to be back in right fellowship with God is to confess that sin. 
As long as we ignore it and we put it and we say, you know, I don't want to deal with that. I, I, I know I've done that, but, you know, I'm just going to try to forget it. As long as that's the kind of attitude we have about it, it's going to continue to be a problem. We have to confess it. We have to confront it and say, yes, I sin. We have to go to God and say, Lord, I confess I've sinned. And when we do that, the Bible says that God forgives us. And 1 John 1, 9 says he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We can have fellowship with him again. Turn with me to one more passage of Scripture, Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs 24, verse number 16. For a just man falleth seven times and riseth again. But the wicked shall fall into mischief. A just man falls seven times. Just means righteous. A righteous man. That's not how you or I would probably have written that verse if if we were writing the book of Proverbs. You know what we would probably have written? We probably would have said, a righteous man never falls. We would probably have said, a righteous person never messes up. A righteous person has their act together and they never make a mistake. They never sin. That's not what God said. God says, a righteous man falls. Multiple times. We need to get the notion of sinless perfection out of our head because we're doomed to frustration and failure if that's what we think, that we're going to be perfect at some point. As long as we're here in this this earth, we're going to be dealing with sin. We just need to accept that. But what Proverbs says is that a righteous man falls seven times, but here it is, riseth again. You're going to fall. You're going to mess up. You're not going to want to do it, hopefully. When you do it, you're going to think, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. But you're going to fall. The important thing is that you rise again. The important thing is that you get back up and you turn to God and say, God, I did it again. And you confess it to God. And when we confess our sins, we will have mercy. We will have God's forgiveness. Aren't you glad that God is not a God of the second chance, but the third and the fourth and the fifth? However many chances you need, if you turn to God, God is there and compassion, and mercy to forgive. With heads bowed and eyes closed. I know a lot of this message was pretty, pretty, you might say, depressing. Here's the Israelites going back and serving idols again and doing all that awful stuff. But I don't want you to leave tonight depressed and frustrated. I want you to leave tonight encouraged. Look how God had compassion on them. His soul was grieved for their misery. He he hurt for their hurt. And 
He's going to deliver them again. Why? Because that's who God is. He is a loving and a merciful God. He's holy and He's just. He can't stand sin. And He won't stand for it in our lives. But when we confess, He's there to forgive. Christian, you may be struggling with some things in your life even right now. There may be some particular sin that you're finding it very hard to break the habit of this sin. And you may be getting frustrated to the point that you have almost given up or maybe you have given up and said, what's the use? I guess I'll just keep doing it. But you know that this sin isn't right and it's taken you away from the Lord. Tonight you need to go to the Lord and you say, God, I did it again. Just confess it. Don't be afraid. God is not going to turn His back on you. God is not going to look at you and say, tough, deal with it yourself. No, that's not God. God's going to say, I forgive you. And God's love and God's mercy will be real in your life again. I didn't preach on specific sins really tonight. Maybe mentioned a few here and there. But maybe God did bring to your mind something specific that's wrong that you need to get right with Him. And then tonight I want to invite you to take this time right now and get that thing right with God.